Welcome to the Brief Premium Times podcast. I'm Jonathan Ames, the editor of The Brief. And later, Linda Chung will be talking to Martin Chamberlain, QC of Brick Court Chambers. He was the Times' Lawyer of the Week, having appeared before the Supreme Court in the landmark case involving same-sex pensions. First, we're going to go through a little rock and roll whirlwind tour of recent legal stories. In case there were any doubt that legal and accountancy firms are not like global coffeehouse chains and purveyors of worldwide internet search engines, lawyers and accountants pay their taxes. At least that's the view of the City UK. The Square Mile Lobbying Group has released a report showing that the two professions contribute 2.5% of the country's entire tax take in any given year. So put that in your pipe and smoke it while sipping a skinny latte and typing the words tax efficiency into Google. Elsewhere in the world of business, London's commercial high court is thriving, and it's all down to foreign litigants. According to a survey of court users, Overseas parties accounted for more than 70% of cases. The biggest foreign buyers of the English commercial court were the Russians and the Kazakhstanis, with the Indians showing an increasing interest. But numbers of litigants from the UK and the EU continued to fall. Over to the English bar, where this is either a worrying or an extremely positive development. More than double the number of barristers were disbarred last year compared with the previous 12 months. That means either barristers are becoming increasingly dodgy or that the profession's regulator, the Bar Standards Board, is becoming increasingly more attentive. But arguably the biggest development for litigation lawyers of all stripes was the publication last week of yet another Jackson report on costs. Sir Rupert, who is the Court of Appeal's Lord Justice Jackson, has advised that a system of fixed costs should be extended on claims valued up to £100,000. And he has also called for a pilot scheme that would trial fixed costs on some commercial cases worth up to £250,000. Enough of the serious business of law. The dog days of August are now upon us. This is a time of year when you are more likely to find an open Paris boulangerie than a City of London law firm partner answering the phone. Yes, the heavy hitters from the square mile and the senior judiciary have all made tracks for Chianti share, leaving tens of thousands of high street lawyers wondering why they didn't pay more attention to corporate law lectures at university. But what to read while quaffing the local vintage as the sun sets over the Dordogne? We've brought together three lawyer lovers of literature to advise. They are also authors and writers in their own rights. Uh, First, we have John Cooper QC, a criminal law specialist from 25 Bedford Road Chambers in London. He's the writer of several TV dramas, including The Law Lord for BBC Films. Richard Susskind, a qualified lawyer and renowned legal profession futurologist and author of Tomorrow's Lawyers. And finally, James Morton, a criminal law specialist solicitor turned author and regular contributor to The Brief. He is also the author of the hugely popular Gangland Lawyers. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Books first, really. Uh, When we were putting together this uh, podcast, we thought absolutely we must ban any reference to John Grisham or Scott Truo. Two purveyors of legal profession pulp in some viewers, uh, some some viewers, some uh, in the minds of some uh, some readers. But I understand we have a fan, Richard Susskind. It's over to you to make the case for both those authors first, please. Well, I'm happy to be dismissed as lowbrow in this. John Grisham set a, a new standard in many ways for the legal thriller. I think with his book, which wasn't his first, but the book The Firm, which set out so interestingly. Uh, the environment of a avaricious U.S. law firm, with its emphasis on prodigious hourly billing and so forth, and some kind of 
fraudulent activities going on. A little bit of a caper, but actually he has the storyteller's gift and acknowledged by so many other novelists that he keeps the pages turning fantastically. Scott Turo, his book Presumed Innocent, actually, after uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, is the, is the second most successful legal book ever. I think it sold over 10 million copies. And he's more of a literary uh, writer. I think he writes very well, practicing lawyer himself. And his courtroom dramas, I think, have the authenticity about someone who stands on his feet regularly in front of a judge. His plots are more involved. I think his messages are more subtle. His insights into legal personalities and ambitious people generally I find very insightful. They've both given rise to a whole uh, range of uh, other authors who write similarly. I'm in front of a man called Stephen L. Carter, who's a Yale law professor, whose book The Emperor of Ocean Park I think is a remarkable story. He himself is a black Yale law professor, and the story is about a black Yale law professor whose father uh, is killed under mysterious circumstances, and it's this father who had transpired, had applied for the, or was a very strong candidate for the Supreme Court of the United States, but it didn't work out. Marvellously rich tapestry of characters and plots, underpinned in many ways by a lot of his theorising uh, about the game of chess. Uh, it, in some ways, takes the legal thriller to another level. Uh, all of these authors are themselves lawyers. I think my all-time favourite thriller writer is a man called Greg Isles, who's just recently com- uh, completed his trilogy in um, the Natchez Burning trilogy. And the final v- volume of that, Mississippi Burning, and it really is a very large trilogy. I think each volume's 800 pages, but again, unputdownable. The final volume, about half of it, is courtroom drama. And again, uh, a wonderful romp. I think it very much depends what one does in one's spare time when there's a book. Uh, for, for me, it is in the cliche and escapism. I like to be taken away. Uh, on some kind of adventure with uh, perhaps implausible characters, but to find it uh, completely entranced, I think, by by those authors. And this is what I really enjoy, and I mentioned earlier, the storyteller's gift, those people who really uh, encourage you to do nothing else than life other than turn that next page. Well, Richard, I mean, I, I will come on to this with all of you, but, I mean, you raise an interesting point, and you say that the, 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 the authors you've mentioned are were qualified lawyers. I mean, do, do you think it's... Is it, is it a prerequisite to write a decent book about lawyers to have been a lawyer? Well, actually, the fourth author, Greg Alves, isn't. But his knowledge of criminal uh, procedure seems pretty strong. I think it helps for the lawyer who's reading a legal book uh, to feel the sense of authenticity and insight and I think the attention to detail that we like as lawyers and we like to see that in one another. I don't think it's necessary, but I do think it is uh, a great advantage. John Cooper, QC. Um Grisham, Jerome, or um, or some or some others. Well, well, let me say I totally endorse what what I, what, what Richard's just said. Uh, I'm a big fan of both of them. Chiro, uh, for instance, I remember one of my f- first legal novels that I read. I've still got the th- well-thumbed copy. I, I can picture the front cover now, a lovely silver and red, rather garish front cover. Uh, it, it's a tremendous book, and they're tremendous writers. And the, the, what they have, and what all writers should have, in my opinion, is a sense of, of the story and a sense of the narrative and a sense of character. And for me, one of the most important elements of any story, whether it be on film or in a book, is that it develops, and it develops in, in, in a sort of lateral way. What do I mean by that? You can see the story starting at A and finishing it at the end of the book at whatever letter you want it to finish at. So they know how to tell a story, and they know how to make characters, and stories are always driven by characters, in my opinion. So they're great writers. I didn't put them down, not because I don't rate them, but I just don't want to duplicate what other people have So who, have, ha- who have you got on your list? Well, mine are more uh, uh, non-fiction, uh, but nonetheless there's a great story and great drama in non-fiction. 
One of the most influential books on me is a book by the great Ludovic Kennedy, uh, a great fighter on miscarriages of justice, and his book, 36 Murders and Two Immoral Earnings, great title in itself, 36 Murders and Two Immoral Earnings. And what he did was he looked at uh, some particularly notable miscarriages of justice, and he doesn't uh, stand back from his criticism, scathing criticism at times, of the lawyers, and particularly the judges. And in the centre of the book, there's a rogues gallery, photographs of judges, who he was of the view, let themselves down. But the sort of cases he deals with in the book, Craig Bentley, of course, in the 1950s, the, the Let Him Have It uh, a, a case, uh, the, the case of Evans and Christie, which some, I'll talk about later in another, in another way. But one of the most interesting ones is Stephen Ward. Uh, he was the, the man that many of your listeners will remember was involved with the Profumos uh, affair. John Profumo uh, having an affair with Christine Keeler and a number of other women. And it effectively, in the end, brought down the Macmillan government. Uh, during the course of Stephen Ward's trial... Uh, a trial on a, on a number of matters, including earning by uh, immoral purposes through through, through women. Uh, he was seen in many respects, and he saw himself as a, as, a, as a victim of the establishment. And during the course of the trial, which many people think was wrongly brought and vindictive, he committed suicide. One of the interesting things about that case, bringing it right up to speed, that only on the 7th of July this year, the Criminal Cases Review Commission came to the view that he he wasn't going to be referred posthumously to the Court of Appeal for having his conviction overturned. So that was one of the books, I think, is a page-turner. In fact, it's about 36 different stories in one. I mean, some of the other books I'm interested in is a great book, and I really do recommend Supper with the Crippins. Supper with the Crippins deals with the final night before it's supposed that Dr Crippin uh, poisoned his wife, uh, Belle Elmore. Uh, at, uh, uh, in 1911, 1910, 1911. And just before that happened, they had uh, some of the neighbours, some of the friends round. And this is an in-depth analysis of that final meal. And it's great because... It, we, what did they have? We, we ha well, they had tripe to begin with, but, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but the dessert was a lovely cake which had been baked, they thought, by uh, uh, Belle Elmore. But the great thing about this is we're reading this with hindsight. And so the detail of the, of the meal, and the detail of the meeting, and then the detail... Uh, and this is all... A lot of this is taken from the neighbours who gave evidence during the trial. So it's all authentic. Uh, there's references to... Well, it, we had to go a little early because we were feeling a little unwell. Uh, one of the neighbours said, he was a doctor himself, he was feeling a little unwell, so I had to go early. Uh, and with hindsight, it's a, it's a great read, both forensically, for lawyers, but it's, it's, it's a black sense of humour that even the neighbours were feeling, how shall I put it, a little dicky towards the end of the meal. And as we know, that night, uh, uh, the, the, the murder, uh, uh, as many think it is, uh, took place. Mm. She felt even a bit more than Dickie. Really. Oh, she, 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 she certainly <laughs> did. To say she was in pieces was, yeah. uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, <laughs> is over-egging the pudding. James Morton. Um, now, I, uh, during the um, discussion of those two uh, renowned American authors, um, uh, populist American authors, uh, I noticed you were slightly squirming in your seat. Maybe just a few words from you first on those two, and then, and then really um, um, your own thoughts on fiction, non-fiction. What you know? What are you plumping for? Well, this is heresy because I really just don't read either of Turo or um, Grisham. I think Grisham wrote uh, one novel, A Time to Kill. And I think that was about it, quite honestly. The rest is pretty well formulaic. 
Uh, I, made for Hollywood, some might say. Absolutely. Good luck to him. I wish I, I were he. And I, <laughs> yeah. but, but the man I, I, I've come across very recently is a fellow called Jack, Jock Serong, who's Australian. And he wrote a book called Quota, which begins with the most wonderful stand-up fight between a judge, an Australian judge, and um, the hero in court. Not physically, but it, it escalates the row, and eventually uh, the lawyer is sent to the cells. Uh, and I think that's the most wonderful sort of real Barney that one has ever read. I'd, I, I would like to write to him and say, is it, absol- is it true? Is this based on one of your Australian <laughs> cases? But looking at other people, I, mean, I like very, very much uh, the Cain Mutiny. For that, again, a wonderful courtroom cross-examination by the uh, Jewish lawyer who is um, defending, uh, really against what it amounts to, is Quig, Humphrey Bogart's allegations uh, that um, there was a mutiny. I think his, that's wonderful, 5, 10, 15, 20 pages of cross-examination. Again, of course, Wu, who wrote it, wasn't a lawyer. What I also do like very much is Anatomy of a Murder, which I think was uh, was filmed. I prefer the book. And uh, <clears throat> I also really do like um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the book. And I can't... I, I looked the other day at the beginning of the film and I thought, I just can't watch this anymore. Why did they, why did they make a hash of the film in your view? Well, I, I just thought now it was mawkish. It mm. didn't stand up. Th- I, I didn't get to the trial. I regret mm-hmm. to say I, I just couldn't stand Scott. I think she's called, isn't mm. he, or Scotty? Mm. D- d- did you, Did you read her uh, novel, which they found many years later? <coughs> uh, that was interesting. Apparently, many people thought a big disappointment. Oh, t- I, I I've started it off, and I thought it was awful. Quite honestly, mm. I just could not read it. And that, if I may say, do you recall reading the second bit of your uh, Emperor of Ocean Park, the second book? What aspect of it do you have in mind? Well, I was just saying that he, he brings the characters back in a second book. Oh, in fact, he brings them back in a series of books. Does he? Yes, uh, it, it, indeed, uh, the, there's a, a set of running themes and running characters, yes. Can I just finish the last yeah, well, do, thing James, I, was, yeah, no. I was going to say? is mm. Has anyone ever read Jane Garnham, um, Old Filth? Given the title, I'm about to go out and buy it. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah. should. Be, I know you shouldn't. You shouldn't, certainly, <laughs> because Old Filth, it's a, a, tr- a legal trilogy, and Old Filth stands, it's an, an it's, um, uh, initials, F-I-L-T-H, failed in London, try Hong Kong. <laughs> I mean, James, I know that you're, um, you're a bit of a connoisseur of, of um, the continental legal profession, at, uh, spe- specifically France. Is there any... Um, is the, is, I know we're all biased here because we're all, um, we're all uh, English readers or English language readers, but is there... Um, Scottish, in fact. Yeah, well, <laughs> I appreciate that, but it's still English language, English language readers. Um, is there... Is there anything to be said for um, non-English versions of legal books or you know legal-themed um, novels? Well, I mean, I, I was looking at this uh, specifically, and I can't really recall reading one I really enjoyed. I mean, there's Les Misérables, of course, but that's uh, not really what I would call a legal mm-hmm. book. Um, so going, no, is a short answer. Going back to films, <laughs> uh, we'll come on to that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can I say something Richard, yes, Sorry, in defense of uh, Grisham and formula? Yeah, I think please the, do. the interesting thing is, of course, he invented the formula, so he deserves some he gets points for that. that. Yeah. I do agree, actually, Time to Kill was his, his first and actually uh, his most profound novel. 
But I think it's perhaps to misunderstand this kind of book, to criticise it for being formulaic. If you think of someone like Lee Childs and his Jack Reacher books, the joy of them is they're almost all identical. You pick it up, you know where it's going, you know how it's going to end, and yet it's curiously comforting. And if you are in the game of reading that kind of regal thriller for the thrill, then the formula actually is often part of the joy rather than a shortcoming. Now there's also a great pleasure when you read a story and knowing something's coming and it actually comes. It's quite fulfilling. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Indeed. Now look, if we could just finish off uh, perhaps by uh, looking at whether you'll be reading a legally themed book over the summer and if so, which one it is. And indeed if you're not, what are you reading um, in any event? John Cooper. Well, I'm uh, reading and will continue to read over the summer uh, the new book on uh, Edward Marshall Hall, which I think is a, a tremendous book, may I say. I'm particularly interested in Marshall Hall and, al and always uh, have been. Uh, in fact, one of the books I was going to recommend also in my list is the original, uh, the doyen of Marshall Hall books, the, the one written by his clerk, uh, Marjorie Banks. Uh, that really, uh, famous trials of Edward Marshall Hall, it's called, it's, it's still worth a read. Uh, the man was flawed. The man had his problems. But then who hasn't? But the, uh, 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 the, the man had his problems, both personal and professional. And he had his style as well, which maybe wouldn't go down today because a styles of advocacy, of course, change. And, 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 the, and that links me nicely to the fourth and final book that I was going to recommend and will be rereading again because I love rereading. You, you can never uh, reread uh, a book enough, which is good. The Art of the Advocate, of course, Richard Ducan. Uh, the, 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 these are books which many would say are technical books, but they're not. They're, they're pure drama about the art of the advocate. And, and so that's really what I'm going to be looking at, finishing off Edward Marshall Hall, the latest edition, uh, but also rereading some of the old stuff about the great man. OK, Richard, what have you got on your list? For oh, I've got to read the latest Co Scott Turow book, <laughs> and in fact, the latest <laughs> John Grisham book, but the Scott Turow one testament I'm very uh, much looking forward to. I have another life as well in technology, so I'll have to be mugging up in a couple of books on uh, artificial intelligence, and particularly one that looks at transhumanism, the way the machines and oh, people are coming together. <laughs> Um, Surely you can get a robot but, uh, to read it for you, can't you? I have the good fortune, actually, of also getting early uh, glimpses of books uh, for blurbing purposes. So I'm reading an interesting one just now by a guy called, a Canadian chap called Kowalski. He's written a really interesting set of case studies called The Great Legal Reformation. Uh, so I think that'll occupy me over the next couple Indeed. of weeks. James Morton, what have you uh, what have you got on the shelves or getting off the shelves for the summer? Well, what, I, what I'm going to do is have another look at Michael Connolly. I know I've just been oh. saying uh, formulaic, and I do accept that's possibly a criticism, but I really do like his trial scenes. I think they're great fun. They're ingenious. The Lincoln Lawyer is what I'm looking at rather than the, the Detective Harry Bosch series. And uh, what I'm really also doing... You want to know what I'm actually reading at the moment as I'm starting again a book which I really loved, The Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. I thought that was when I was starting, when I was in my teens or twenties, I thought that was wonderful. And I must say, I still do. Connolly is really good. His book, The Poet, is one of the classic thrillers, yes. actually. But I notice he's got a new novel and a, a new uh, protagonist, so I look forward to that as well. John Cooper QC, Richard Susskind, James Morton, thank you very much for sharing your summer reads with us and now over to linda chung and this week's lawyer of the week with me is martin chamberlain qc of brickcourt chambers thank you for joining us martin was instructed by human rights organization liberty to act for former cavalry officer john walker in the supreme court in a landmark decision the five justices ruled unanimously 
that if Mr Walker predeceases him, his husband will have the same pension rights as a widower that a widow would have in a heterosexual relationship. Uh, Martin, what were the main challenges in this case? Well, uh, John Walker's case was about whether a provision of domestic legislation, uh, part of the Equality Act, was compatible with uh, EU law. And everyone agreed that EU law makes it unlawful to discriminate against gay people now. The complicated question was whether that applies to pension benefits that were earned when it wasn't unlawful to discriminate against uh, gay people. So Mr Walker went to the human rights organisation Liberty, who knew a number of people in the same position. He uh, instructed Max Schaefer in my chambers, who, who argued the case in the Employment Tribunal in 2012 and won. Um, but at that point, the government got involved, arguing that claims of that kind would upset the financial planning of pension schemes. And that argument had succeeded in the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Court of Appeal. Um, I came in as a, as a leader in the Court of Appeal, and having lost there, our main challenge was to convince the Supreme Court that it wasn't necessary to refer questions to the European Court of Justice. Um, the proceedings had begun in 2011, so the last thing we wanted was more delay. And what that meant was that we had to show not just that we were right and the Court of Appeal was wrong, but also that the answer was clear. So the first thing that Mr Walker said to me when I met him was, if I divorce my husband now and marry the first woman I meet who will have me, she will get the full pension. And that was what struck him as so unfair about the situation. And it transpired, in fact, that that was also the main point on which the legal argument turned. So because the pension scheme provides benefits irrespective of the date of the marriage, the situation was not, the Supreme Court said, permanently fixed at the date of retirement. So the act of discrimination occurs now at a time when sexual orientation discrimination is unlawful and not uh, at the time when the pension was earned. Was this case particularly complex? Uh, it was complex uh, because there was a lot of European case law on the question of how retrospectivity applies to pension benefits. But the facts were very simple. John Walker had worked for a company for 23 years. He was a member of its pension scheme. Under the terms of the scheme, when a member died any surviving spouse was entitled to a substantial spouse's pension. In, in John's case, that was about £45,000. But spouse meant opposite-sex spouse. So if he died married to a woman, she would be entitled to £45,000 odd for life, even if the marriage took place long after retirement. But because the person he married is a man... Uh, he would stand to get only about £1,000. And to most people, that would seem unfair and a clear case of direct sexual orientation discrimination. The complication was that a provision in the Equality Act says that you can't bring that kind of discrimination claim for pension benefits if the service to which the pension relates was before 2005. Uh, the date when civil partnerships first became available in the UK. And what's, ha what's happened since the, this ruling? 
Well, one thing that's happened since the judgment was handed down last month is that Liberty has received messages from a lot of other uh, gay men and women saying, thank you, now we don't have to worry about our spouses being provided for when we die. And it's very satisfying to have been involved in achieving that outcome. But, of course, the right that gay couples have as a result of the Supreme Court's decision is a right derived from EU law. And the reason we were able to establish that right is because, at the moment, EU law prevails over Acts of Parliament. Now, no government minister has yet suggested that Brexit will be used to take away this kind of right, but equally, nor has any confirmed that it won't. Uh, and it would be quite good to have some clarity so that when MPs vote on the EU draw bill, which they're going to do, we understand, in the autumn, they know whether they're voting to take away from gay couples the right that we've now established. Martin, thank you very much. Thank you, Linda and Martin Chamberlain. And thank you for listening and goodbye until next time.